Well, hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, all we can say is, here we go, yo, here we go, yo. So what's the, what's the scenario? That's right. Today we're diving into Tribe Called Quests, the low-end theory. So, Micaiah, start us off. What do we need to know about Tribe Called Quest's sophomore album, The Low End Theory? It's without a doubt a, a huge milestone in the golden age of hip hop. And when we refer to the golden age of hip hop, we typically talk about probably somewhere between 1986 and 96, maybe even as further as 97. So like that 10-year stretch is often referred to as the golden age of hip-hop. And this fits almost perfectly in the middle of that. And it's uh, a tribe called Quest, uh, who are members of this collective called Native Tongues. That's made up of a group of young, black, Afrocentric artists, such as the Jungle Brothers, De La Soul, Queen Latifah, Moni Love, and Charcoal Quest, right? So uh, in, in large response to uh, the gangster rap that's happening and uh, the, the crack crisis in a lot of black neighborhoods and some of the braggadocia that's happening, particularly uh, the flaunting of jewelry and weapons and stuff like that, you know, just kind of anti-materialism you know, positivity being at the forefront instead of negativity and division. And so they they form this collective of black men and black women who are conscious of their their African roots since the name Native Tongues. And it plays a part of the exploration of their sounds and their rhymes and their music and their samples. And there's a stretch of albums in 1988 is the first Jungle Brothers album. And then 89, you get De La Soul. In 1990, you get the first uh, Tribe album. But then in 91, you get this masterpiece of hip-hop. All right, The first Tribe album, to me, you can definitely hear this friendly rivalry with Tribe trying to match and compete with Jungle Brothers and De La Soul. And with the low-end theory, you hear Tribe Called Quest uh, pretty much carving out right, a path for themselves, right? And from this point on, they're only competing with themselves. Uh, so that, that, that's kind of how I view this album. And it, its influence can not be exaggerated. I mean, this, this inspires pretty much everyone after this. Uh, Tip goes on to produce a Q-Tip that is uh, for a lot of people, not excluding Nas on Illmatic, which is another hip-hop staple uh, toward the end of the golden age of hip-hop. Uh, even today, right, up to today, you know, this has heavily influenced uh, people like Kanye, Kendrick, uh, Outkast. I mean, you name it. Right? There's, uh, if hip-hop exists today, you know, it, it's probably uh, been touched by this album in particular in this group of people. Yeah. Uh, the thing that stands out to me, and I've been thinking about this a lot, re-listening to this album over the last week 
especially in the context of rap music in general, in that kind of golden era, that, that let's go ahead and call it 86 to 97, 86 to 98, that kind of golden era of rap. This is one of very few albums where the prominent instrument that you hear and, and again, fitting of the name of the album, other than the, other than the drum, other than the beat, the most prominent instrument you hear that is not a percussive instrument is the upright bass. And in a season, in a season of music where artists were essentially just doing samples, or even if you had kind of the sound of an upright bass, it was a synth bass. This is a live recorded upright bass. And there's something about the, the thickness and the tone and the timbre of the upright bass on the low end theory. And you realize that almost every track on low end theory is very little, uh, it's very little other than an upright bass line drums. And these two, three, depending upon the guest verse, sometimes four or five guys rapping over. And yet this album never feels repetitive. It, it never feels like it's losing anything. There's something incredibly beautiful about it. And, and of course, because of that, and because of the presence of a live instrument in this mix and featured so prominently in this mix, it is really seen as a, a, a fusion of jazz and hip hop together. And, yeah. and, and so there, there's a whole lot there. And, and of course, it, it's been defined by that kind of minimalist sound that we hear. And, and, and so one of the things that I love about this album, again, the beauty of, of an actual double bass, of an upright bass instrumentation, is it makes the album almost sound live. It, because there's a real human, there's a human being playing an instrument rather than just a synthesizer, rather than just kind of ones and zeros. This is, this is an analog recorded instrument. It feels live. It feels present. It feels kind of right in front of you in a way that albums were not sounding, especially hip hop albums were not sounding during this season in rap. And that would change going forward. And in many ways, the live instrumentation we're going to hear on definitive rap albums that are going to follow the low end theory are really riding the coattails of this album, of what Tribe has done, and really what Q-Tip has done as a producer. I mean, that's one of the things that for, for all that we're talking about in terms of hip hop music and rap music, you know, Dr. Dre was really serving as the producer for NWA's albums already. But by and large, there were not a lot of rap artists who were also serving as the producers of these albums. And so one of the things that is really interesting is hearing Q-Tip's production and the role that he played in mixing this album. And then of course you get to see how that really starts a, a trend within the genre um, what Dre does for NWA and, for, and later on for his own work and then for other artists on the West Coast and what Q-Tip is ultimately going to do for other rap artists is, is begin a trajectory that ultimately takes us to uh, guys like Kanye West and Kendrick Lamar and, 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 and the recognition that these are, are artists that have a clear vision, not just for 
what a verse is going to sound like, not just that they're a great rapper, but they are really beginning to be respected as musicians and in, in music creators and music producers in a way that they were not prior to albums like this coming out. And so there's, there's a whole lot of just the musicality that I love within this. But for me, I also just love, there's a playfulness, there's a positivity, there is a fun to uh, Q-Tip and Fife Dog in, in the way they rap together in, in, in what is so clearly almost like a childhood friendship that comes out in the way that they rap together. Uh, and, and there's something really beautiful about that. And you, you just hear it. You hear their love for each other. You hear the vibe they have together as they rap together on this album. And, and for me, it's, it's, it's beautiful and it makes it fun to listen to. It makes this an album that you can just put on repeat and it stays fun. It's, you know, and, and again, my favorite time today listening to this album I had a long, uh, I had a long drive ahead of me this morning for a meeting that I was going to. And so I just put this album on in the car and, you know, having, having the bass hitting in the car and, and just kind of feeling the, the vibe of this album, uh, man, low in theory is just great. Talking about, uh, the bass on the album, we have to mention, uh, who it is and that's Ron Carter who is one of the, the kind of all-time great uh, jazz musicians, uh, especially when it comes to, to the bass, uh, who plays on uh, one of the underappreciated, one of my favorite Miles Davis albums uh, with Herbie Hancock, also uh, Seven Steps to Heaven. Uh, he's, mm-hmm. So he's the one who's really driving uh, that, that pulse throughout the album. Yeah, so with hip-hop, there's always kind of the, the DJ-MC relationship. Even with Run DMC and the Jam mm-hmm. Master J, EPMD, Boogie Down Productions, you know, with uh, KRS-One and Scott LaRock. Uh, yeah, but Tip is kind of the person who's like, he's the MC, he's the writer, he's the producer, uh, he's, he's the visionary mm-hmm. right behind the, the concepts uh, that, that are represented in, in the Tribe Records. So yeah, so he he definitely represents kind of this new kind of figure in hip hop, for sure. Yeah. I think there's there there's an argument to be made that with the exception of Dre, you're going to get to 2003 2004 before you're going to see another visionary rap producer rap artist um, like Q Tip just because of, of what he brings to the table. Yeah. Um, and, and again, a, a, in many ways, a unique and entirely original voice in rap music. Still to this day, I mean, Tip is, Tip is a, is a yeah. unique and wholly original unto himself yeah. uh, voice within, within hip-hop as a, and, as a whole. And I think because uh, Tip is so involved as writer, producer mc uh i think he's very uh conscious of the lp mm-hmm. right this album being a statement these 14 songs being a statement in a way that other hip-hop records really aren't yeah um, in, in a lot of ways so they're they're great hip-hop albums you're like man a couple of these songs are the best songs of all time and a couple of these other songs we can all live without. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, but a tribe album, you have to listen start to finish. You have to get the whole picture. You know, he, he's very, and I think that's because of um, his influence on, on the influence of jazz on, on mm-hmm. in, in, in hip hop. Um, and in the influence of, of Rakim, who, you know, his flow, uh, so he says, is um, inspired by John Coltrane. So, so the jazz has always been there. It's been in New York hip-hop for a long time, and Tribe really makes that kind of the focus. Uh, and that, that's kind of where it really takes a turn and kind of becomes a genre-defining album, even within hip-hop, is alternative hip-hop or jazz Mm-hmm. Hip hop, you know, uh, yeah, it, it's hard to think now that this is even within this golden age uh, of hip hop revolutionary. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe revolutionary is too too intense, but certainly a, a new milestone. And I think having the live bass on there and all that is what makes it timeless. You know, it's not just eight oh eight machines. Than someone spitting a verse, you know, there, there's a timeless quality to it. That timelessness was recognized immediately when the album came out. Um, uh, it, it got a perfect five mic rating in in Source. It, it was recognized almost immediately as not being a sophomore slump. And again, the the debut Tribe Tribe album is a great album as well. And yes. you could make the argument that this trilogy. Um, the 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 debut tribe album low in theory and then midnight marauders you're really getting to see the evolution of this group but also i think you're getting to see the evolution of 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 tip as producer mc right i mean kind of all the things we're talking about and, and i'll go out on the limb and say you're also witness to the best hip-hop trilogy the best like in three consecutive album run until just recently when Kendrick put out Damn in 2017 to, to do his Good Kid, Mad City, to Pimp a Butterfly. Yeah, and for our, and for our listeners, we, we kind of put this out on our Instagram um, a couple weeks ago as we were getting ready to record this about what rap artist has the, the greatest trilogy, the greatest run of three albums in a row. And... The only one for me that I would think that I would say is better. The the only three run, the only artist with three consecutive albums that I would place higher as a trilogy than Tribe would probably be Outcast. If you're looking at Aquimini, Stankonia, and Speakerbox, Love Below, and then and then Kendrick Lamar, Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid, Mad City. To Pimp a Butterfly and Damn. Kendrick Lamar and Outcast are the only two artists that I would put ahead of Tribe in terms of the strength of three albums within within that span. And so thinking of, of Tribe Called Quest and, and thinking of specifically Low in Theory, when it came out, it peaked uh, Billboard at number 43, ultimately ended up selling a half million copies. The year that it came out was certified gold by the Recording Industry Association of America. Um, there were three singles released from from the album, and when you listen to it now, 
it seems strange to think that Scenario was not the first single released from the album. But you know what was? Smart. I think that's smart. Uh, first was Check the Rhyme. That's right. Is that right? Check, See, check that, the Rhyme. Mm-hmm. And then check. we got the jazz. Mm-hmm. And then Scenario. I think that's perfect. I think that's the way to do it. Check the Rhyme. If you're if you're like, oh, what's the first single off the low end theory? Check the rhyme has the most bass to it. Mm-hmm. They can knock the wind out of you if you're yeah. in your car and you got the volume set right. Uh, I think that is a great first way in. But then also remind them this is the jazz era of hip hop, and then give them we got the jazz. I think that's smart. And then third, right? Not necessarily bad and clean up, but third, right? Give them the posse cut. The scenario, mm-hmm. right? I think I think that's pretty genius. And and you and I another another kind of debate that you and I have been having. Buster Rhymes verse in scenario maybe among the best guest verses on an album on a rap album we've ever heard. Guest verse and just regular verse. That mm-hmm. that verse is the gift that keeps giving. I mean, we've heard it come back in Nicki Minaj. We heard it come back in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. You know, like this, that thing has legs. You know, that 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 one that is the gift that keeps giving. Yeah, we were talking about this. For me, the only one that comes close to it would be Jay-Z's verse in Kanye's album. I mean, in Kanye's song on late registration, Diamonds from Sierra Leone which of course is famous for the line, I'm not a businessman, I'm a business man. One of the, yeah, that's what, I'll, I mean, that's, that's pretty unmatchable. Now, there has been tons of acclaim that's been given over the years to Low End Theory. Uh, Blender listed it among their 100 greatest American albums of all time, ranking it number 53. Um, Pitchfork, the 100 favorite records of the 1990s. They labeled it number 56. That's an Rolling, Rolling Stone, in their top 25 hip-hop albums of all time, this issue came out in 2005, ranked it as number nine. Mm-hmm. And the 2020 revision of the Rolling Stone 500 greatest albums of all time places Low End Theory at number 43. Top 50. That's, That's right. Spin Magazine's the top 90 albums of the 90s placed this at 32. Stereophile placed it among their 40 essential American albums. Wow. And the Source, the Source Magazine's ranking of the 100 best rap albums of all time placed Low End Theory at number four. Yeah. That's good. Time Magazine placed this among their all-time 100 top albums that came out in 2006. And Vibe Magazine in 1999 released their list 100 essential albums of the 20th century, and the Low End Theory was among the 100 essential albums that of the 20th ranked, century. Right? It was not ranked. It was just to be included or not. Yeah. Rightfully included. Yeah. Right, rightfully included. So... You and I both agreed on low-end theory. So we're not really making a case. Here's my case. Here's your case. Mm -hmm. But before we are joined today by our guest, Mona Lisa, 
Mona Lisa is a DJ in Los Angeles. She also is an employee who works at Amoeba Records in Hollywood. And when we reached out to Amoeba Records and we said, we want someone who is your pick to speak at length about low end theory. They said, you have to talk to Mona Lisa. So we're going to be joined by her in just a few minutes. But before we're joined by her, let's go ahead, Micaiah, just you and I, an album we both love. Let's hear your top five low-end theory tracks. All right. I can do this, <laughs> I think. Uh, and just just in the order that they appear on the album, because ranking is, is hard. Uh, the opening track, Excursions, that's in there. I mean, that's just an all-time great opening track. I feel like I say that in, for a lot of these episodes, uh, but I believe it. Uh, and then two bugging out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love it. I love it. Uh, number three, check the rhyme, which would probably be my favorite on the album. Oh, you know what? I, I went a little bit out of order, but vibes and stuff. I love the production on that one. I don't think a lot of people may be in that in that camp, uh, but the quality of that of that record is phenomenal. And then what is this list? without scenario even though as i was saying that it sounds like i was about to say what what is this list if you don't have scenario you know but i'm i'm glad you changed it to include vibes and stuff because i thought you were going to go for jazz we've got the jazz and and let's be honest you and i have an almost identical list mine would Mm -hmm. be excursions bugging out check the rhyme we've got jazz in scenario. Oh, wow. So listeners, we're going to take a break and let you hear from today's sponsors. And then we're going to be back to talk with our guest, Mona Lisa. Well, it's that time for our independent record store of the week. And this week, in honor of our guest, DJ Mona Lisa, we are highlighting her place of work, Amoeba Music, the world's largest independent record store with three locations in Berkeley, San Francisco, and Hollywood, California. If you are interested in music, you have likely already heard about Amoeba or seen some of their videos on their YouTube channel. But you can check out their website, Amoeba.com, where they sell new and used vinyl, CDs, DVDs, Blu-rays, music and movies, and everything ships free to the United States with no minimum purchase required. You want to check out Amoeba Records for yourself and continue to support independent record stores. Um, I am a DJ in the Los Angeles area, uh, and I travel. Um, I'm also a product buyer at Amoeba, um, when they're open, of course. Um, (laughs) And I have a um, monthly show on DubLab called Pass the Rhythm. Funny that we're talking about Tribe because it's called Pass the Rhythm. Um, It's every third Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. on DubLab, and it streams on the website. So uh, let me me ask you that before we get into talking about low-end theory. As, as someone who's a DJ, and, and, and again, 
because of technology, because of streaming now, there are ways and creative ways to get involved, um, spinning records uh, for people who may not be present. But there is something specific to the DJ experience that you need the people in the room, you need the people in front, you need to be able to see that how people are responding live in the moment to what you're doing. So what has it been like for you this last year to kind of have not had that experience to have almost that, that thing that's so core to who you are kind of taken away for the last year? It's definitely been strange because it's, you know, it became, you know, a a regular routine. And then it's like, after the first month, it was like, okay, I really haven't DJed anywhere. And then after the second month, it was like, well, I guess I'm not DJing anywhere. And then the third month, it was like, wow, like, what do you know? So everybody was trying to, not just me, but other DJs were trying to figure out what do we do? So like, the thing about me is I had to go take care of my mom. So I was not in, in my, in my house with my records for eight months. So I did have my computer and I had the internet. So I was able to like dig around and, you know, listen to music on my laptop, but it's not the same as touching and feeling your records. So, and I play both when I DJ. So it's not like I'm just a computer DJ. So it was very strange for me. So when I came back home in November, um, after I got my mother situated, um, touching my records again was strange. It just, it was like, it's like I missed my babies and then I had to get familiar with them again because I had recorded mixes and stuff on my controller while I was there. So coming back and touching my records again, is just like, I mean, it's just like a bicycle. Once you get back on, you go. But it was just strange touching the records again and feeling the grooves and being like, okay, this is, I miss this warm feeling because mm. having a connection with a record is different than listening to an MP3 and just, you know, hearing a song. It's like once you touch the record and you can read the liner notes and you can feel the, you know, just feel it. It's just a totally different feeling. So it, it definitely felt good to be back, you know, with the records. So it's, you know, it's, it's been a challenging year, but, you know, at least those of us that have records have our records to, you know, to listen to. What was your first exposure to Tribe Called Quest or to this album? Well, it actually started with the Jungle Brothers. So when I was in high school, um, the Jungle Brothers had a song called I'll House You that we were hearing on, you know, on the electronic side. But I had no idea that they were like an actual, like, not, not that they weren't a hip hop group, but they were doing the kind of hip hop I was used to. Cause I, you know, a house, she was a house song so that it's known as a house staple. So um, when I got out of high school, um, I went to a club called Water the Bush um, with a bunch of my friends. Water the Bush was a club that was started by the Zulu Nation on the West Coast. There's Zulu Nation um, chapters all over the country and the West Coast Zulu Nation chapter had started Water the Bush. And so the Jungle Brothers, of course, got a lot of play there at the club. So that was my first time hearing um, Straight Out the Jungle, which was from the same album that Al Haushi was on. So they're all in the same, you know, of course, uh, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, and the Jungle Brothers were all native tongues. So they were all in the same cruise, but that was my first exposure. So then after, because of my exposure to the Jungle Brothers and their second album, Done by the Forces of Nature, then I got into De La Soul. Uh, when I was still in high school. And then after high school, then I finally got into Tribe. Um, and my first experience with them was uh, seeing their videos on Rap City, seeing Bonita Applebaum on Rap City. That was just, it was eye-opening for me because they didn't look like the rest of the hip hoppers. You know, everybody else had on Kangos and Adidas and, you know, sweatsuits and like gold chains and all this fly, you know, all this stuff. And they were just dressed like they were from the motherland. So I was like, okay, this is different. This is, it's cool. And it's associated with the Jungle Brothers. So it's got to be good. So that was my first uh, introduction to them. And it blew my mind because it didn't sound like anything else. Everything else was kind of loud and um, angry and boisterous. And their music was real like melodic and cool, but also like educational. So that's mm. what drew me to it. 
you were already a Tribe fan when this album came out? Well, yeah, because I had gotten into people's instinctive travels in the passive rhythm. So the thing about that album was that the kind of listener that I was at the time, my grandfather had a whole slew of jazz albums and he was like a jazz aficionado. He used to hang out on Central Avenue back in the 40s when all the jazz musicians used to be out here playing. So he was in the scene and he knew everybody. So he had everything like all the best records. But my problem was that I grew up more like listening to Motown and Philly Soul. And I mean, we had rock in the house too. We had all kinds of stuff. But the thing was, I was used to an eight count, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I wasn't used to, you know, jazz is real, real, you know, it's real all over the place, especially the avant-garde stuff and the bebop stuff. And I just wasn't used to that sound. So I couldn't get into it because it didn't have a beat. It just, it kind of did its own thing, which was beautiful. And I found that out later on. But my first introduction was like, I, this is this is it's too much going on. Like, I can't figure this out. It was it was like confusing to me. So mm. when People's Instinctive Travels in the Paso Rhythm came out, they had sampled Roy Ayers and Donald Byrd and Grant Green and all these different people. And I didn't know that that was jazz, too. I'm just thinking that's soul or it's, you know, some different kind of music. But I wasn't associating it with jazz. So my uncle was listening to me, listen to this record. And he was like, tripping. He's like, how did they do that to that Donald Byrd song? And I was like, who? I said, that's Tribe Called Quest. He's like, that's Donald Byrd. And I'm like, what? So then he shows me the album. He's like, this is Donald Byrd. This is, and I'm like, what? And he had always told me never to touch his record. So I never was like, I'm like, are you going to let me touch this record now? So I got to touch the records and look at them. So that was my introduction into jazz. So I came into jazz on the like late 70s, rare groove kind of side and then eventually over the years i made my way back to the eric dolphys and the john coltrane's and got into that and was able to figure it out but in the very beginning i was like you know it was confusing to me so i owe my love for jazz now my introduction to jazz to those early tribe called quest albums because of the samples on them were you able through low in theory to kind of go back and discover ron carter in that yeah because um when they said Ron Carter's on the bass. And back then, you know, you had liner notes, so you could read along with the record and you could see who was who and what was what. And it's the same thing. My uncle, again, is like, Ron Carter's on that album? Like, it kind of fascinated him that the hip-hop I was listening to was, you know, was using artists of that caliber or whatever. And so another thing about Low End Theory that I appreciated was that I didn't know anything about sampling or digging. I mean, I did, but it was just different with their records because of how they did it. hmm and how the drum breaks that they used at the time, nobody, very few people had used them at the time. So like they kind of opened that door or Q-tip opened that door of the, of the drum samples. And then if you, you know, over the years, you listen to hip hop, you, you, there's so many songs that sampled those particular songs on Low In Theory, not just the records that they were sampled from, but also the actual songs because of the way he laid them down. So that's, that's a trip. As a DJ, so much of the work of, of a good DJ is is really production work it's 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 almost approaching it like a producer like a mixer as for someone with your experience and your love for music and, and coming at it from that dj side what do you see or what do you hear in q-tips production on low end theory that stands out to you the layering the layering because he'll use the drum break through the whole song and then you know layer little pieces over there like like 
you know, there's sometimes it, it'll be the drum break under it and then it'll be one track over the whole thing. And then sometimes he'll layer, he'll have a track going and then he'll throw a piece in the hook. And it's just the way it was put together was like, it's kind of like mathematics. It's hard to, hard to explain, but it's like literally like mathematics. Like he chopped it up and put it in certain places. I mean, I think everybody does that. But I think the thing about him doing is that he did it so early on and he kind of laid a blueprint for other people to follow that pattern of how you put a song together. Because before that, it seemed like people were kind of just using scratch breaks. They would scratch in a little piece and drop it for like eight counts or whatever. But you just didn't hear a lot of what he was doing at the time, um, like Butter um, or Butter, um, where he lays down the, the, uh, the drum break and then um, you hear the weather report come in. Mm -hmm. in the very beginning and then when the hook comes in you hear gary barts and then the weather report comes back in and then the gary barts comes back in the hook again so it's like the way it's just the way the drum break doesn't really stop i mean it gets soloed out when the when the sample drops out but you always hear the drum break all the way through and then he just laid everything on top of it he laid down the weather report and then put the gary barts down and yeah so that's that's a that's a, a good example of it for someone who this episode might be their very first exposure to low end theory, that, that our hope is, is that they're going to listen to this episode and then run to the record store and buy a copy of low end theory. And we would love mm-hmm. if they bought all three of the first tribe called quest albums, because they are all phenomenal. But if, if this is someone's first exposure, mm-hmm. how, how can you help our listener draw the line between the legacy of low end theory and what they're hearing today? Back then with low end theory, it was the first of, I think it was the first of its kind. I mean, people's instincts and the travels, people's instinctive travels in the passive rhythm is its own entity, but mm-hmm. low end theory was just like, it was, it was, it was just one of a kind. And it was like the first of its kind to be put together the way it was. And we always have this argument, me and my friends and other hip hop aficionados have this argument about which one is better low end theory or midnight marauders. Because mm-hmm. to me, Midnight Marauders is the continuation of Low End Theory, but it's not like Low End Theory is the continuation of people's instinctive travels in the passive rhythm. It's like that. It's just its own album. And then Low End Theory and, and Midnight Marauders are kind of like, they're, they're kind of part one and part two. Mm-hmm. And some people think Midnight Marauders is better. Some people think Low End is better. It just depends on where you are as a fan. But the bottom line is the stuff that's out today, it's, it's, it's kind of like that. It's I kind of can't even really compare it. I mean, it's hard for me to answer that. You can't really compare them because it it was a certain time and a certain vibe that was going on at the time. Whereas now it's like a totally different uh, atmosphere. So someone who's listening to music now can go back to that album to appreciate Low in Theory for the time period that it was done in and how it was put together specifically, but it's influenced so many people to make their albums in that particular manner, um, even up to today. Is there an artist who you can draw the line to? Um, we're just like, okay, th- this person would not exist without Tip and uh, the Low End Theory Tribe Called Quest. Is there anyone in particular where you can just say, or any, any record, uh, maybe not even a particular artist, but a particular album. Fantastic Volume 2 by Slum Village. Okay. Because um, Slum Village, um, which was all produced by Jay Dilla, JD, who um, was a big Tribe Called Quest fan. He's an example of somebody who studied 
what Q-Tip did and how he put the songs together, did the same thing with Fantastic Volume 2. Fantastic Volume 1, I could even count too. It's just Fantastic Volume 1 is, is kind of, it's grittier, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, they're both equal examples of an influence of Tribe Called Quest. Um, again, they're not, Fantastic Volume 2 cannot compare to Low End Theory to me. I mean, it's, um, and I, I'm using Volume 2 as an example because it's the more recognized album as opposed to Volume 1. Um, but it can't, replace or overshadow low in theory but it's an example of the legacy of the album and how it was put together yeah little brother is another example of that um little brother's first album called the listening is it gives me a lot of reminders of of uh, low in theory really all the tribe albums kind of mashed into one with the interludes and the samples and the way they rhyme and everything same type of thing would you say that it's easier to draw the line tribes influence now um with within still like the alternative hip-hop scene the underground hip-hop scene more so than the mainstream yeah absolutely because sample wise they started moving towards the um the r&b side of stuff like um there was a really popular radio station in um, new york wbls and they played r&b music and they played like all the disco hits and all the r&b hits so there's a lot of there's a lot of rappers that sampled um, mostly R&B stuff. Like they sampled it, but they they kind of flipped it a little bit on the underground too. But most of the tribe stuff is all jazz or like um, more lesser known or not as like well-known R&B songs. They didn't sample anything that was super obvious. Whereas most of the samples from the R&B, from the, um, the hip hoppers in the late 90s were more obvious records. They were sampling stuff like SOS Band and um midnight star and like you know groups that had chart success whereas most of the stuff that um q-tip was sampling on low in theory was um was jazz records that were kind of obscure or kind of off the path or you know things like that so i think there was definitely a difference in what in what they were doing so the the um consumers of today and the underground rappers still um or underground fans still look at tribe called quest and low in theory as a go-to Whereas the mainstream artists aren't, I mean, they still are, but it's, it's more of a go-to for the underground artists because it, the drum breaks, you know, they still, all the underground rappers still sample drum breaks or still make drum breaks based on the original drum breaks, whereas they're not really paying attention to the mainstream or the samples. I think the only person that did that and got a claim for it was MF Doom on his album, Operation Doomsday. He sampled a lot of R&B songs. He sampled Sade, sampled, um, somebody I'm forgetting, Anita Baker. Um, so he is one of the very few people that did that and was able to still, you know, get his underground following for that. Right. Let me, let me just take a, a moment there because, because you brought him up and it's been something as, as we've been thinking through this idea of looking at the, the greatest hip hop and rap albums, especially, you know, I think Mad Villainy gets, gets so much um, acclaim and credit now that it's easy to forget that MF Doom put out three albums in that one year. And with his recent passing, um, can, can you just talk just uh, briefly for us about what an incredible artist MF Doom was? He's, I mean, there's, it's not really too many words I can put into it. He's just one of a kind. Like he, the way he rhymes and the way he put, songs together was just like no one else there's no one else that was on his level that could do it like him 
I mean, it's there's artists like that, like Mad Lib, like JD, like they're just the way they did what they did is that there's no nobody to compare them to. Like when you put your your list together of your of your your you know MCs you want to hear on a song, like you couldn't put MF Doom on a song with other people because it just it wouldn't work because his style is so so to the left. I mean, he's, he's just such an incredible talent, you know, from the production to rap to even the samples that he chose is just just crazy. I mean, there's there's I I I couldn't talk enough about him. I want to go back to something you mentioned about your first exposure to Quest and 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 really arriving through uh, through through a club that kind of Zoom Nation had put together. This similarity between tribe, De La Soul, uh, in in this kind of community that they're all coming out of. Well, like you said, it was a lot of like Slick Rick, for example. You have Slick Rick with his diamonds and his jewelry on and his crown and his, you know, flashy stuff. And then you have LL Cool J with his Kangol and his, and his sweatsuits. And then you have Public Enemy, you have Flavor Flav with the clock and all this. And it's like, so a, a prime example of that is like um, De La Soul's video for me, myself and I. In their video, they're in the class and they're there in their Paisley shirts and their, you know, their dreadlocks and whatever. And everybody in the class is looking at them like, where the hell are y'all from? Like, what planet did you come from? Like, what is this? And it was just such a, it was a culture shock for most of the people that were in the industry at the time. And then for us as listeners, like, okay, this is different, but this is different, but we're kind of into it. Whereas in the video, everybody in the video is dressed like your average rapper and is dissing them. Like, oh, you're, you're what are you, what are y'all doing? Like, and at the end of the video, they just kind of gave up and walked away from it. Whereas in real life, in the, in the, the music business and in the industry and in the scene, they blew up because they were so different. And that's what made them stand out amongst everybody else. So it's like, now there's so many people today that look and sound exactly alike. Like you can't tell one from the other. Sometimes you're listening to the radio, they all, some of the mumble rappers or whatever, they sound the same. So it's like, you don't know one young, one young this or little this, you don't know who's who. Whereas back then you knew exactly who Tribe was and you knew who Dela was and you knew who the Jungle Brothers were because of their style, because of the way they rhymed and because of what they rhymed about. Um, Tribe Called Quest, it was just like wordplay, just like sick wordplay. And then you had Fife with the always trying to battle, like battle me, like, you know, you don't want to see me, you don't want to battle me. And Q-Tip kind of just had the buttery rhymes. And then with De La Soul, you had them with their phrase to speak was so confusing. It was like you had to really listen to what they were saying to figure out what the rhyme said. And then with the Jungle Brothers, they were just educating. Because right, right, right around then, like 89, 90s, when they were educating, uh, there's a lot of conscious rap. So there was Poor Righteous Teachers and there was X-Clan. And it was a lot of learning about, you know, African history and American history and things like that. So it was such an educational period about, you know, individuality and about education. And it's like now people that can go back, they can listen for that. They can get that education, whether you're getting educated about blackness, whether you're getting educated about America, whether you're getting educated about style or, you know, getting even getting educated about the breakbeats they were using and the samples they were using and the music that was going in there that, you know, people hadn't heard before. It's just a lot of, a lot of education that someone can get if they go back and get all that. And it's, you don't, as music moved forward, you didn't get that education very much anymore. It was more just kind of everybody doing the same thing. There was more mimicking the next person, the next person. The beautiful thing about all those three of those groups is that nobody tried to be them. They were mm. all their own individual people. 
tribe was tribe. It's like some village didn't try to be tribe, but there was that influence. There's a difference when you try to mimic something, whereas you just grow from it because that's what you came from. So, um, but yeah, definitely people that are listening to music today can go back and get so much from that that they couldn't get from people that they're listening to today. There's like specific things, like I said, the education of, you know, African history and the education of um, the sampling and um, just the wordplay. Yeah, and that's that's important to note because even like 1988, you know, Three Feet High and Rising comes out in 89, the Jungle Brothers album comes out uh, straight out of the jungle in, in 88, but also like around that time, uh, you're you're hearing a similar flow similar rhymes kind of happening like with Schoolie D's PSK and then Ice-T doing 3AM and then Eazy-E doing Boys in the Hood. It's the same flow. It's almost the same beat. Right. <laughs> and then the Native Tongues mm-hmm. come in and they just say, not a chance. Like that, you know, like they, they just ex- just explore every avenue that hip-hop can go that no one dared go before. Do you consider Low in Fury one of the greatest albums of all time? Yes, absolutely. And the reason, I mean, I've already talked about the reason, but of course, it's just, it's, it's one of a kind. It's, it's, it's its own entity. But again, I just have to keep bringing up the arguments that we always have about Low in Theory versus Midnight Marauders because they're both put together. They're two different albums, but they were put together with the same the same uh, passion, let's put it that way, the same passion, the same ideal. It's like, um, it, it, it's, it's the way the, 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 the breakbeats were used and the way the samples were used. And it's like, there was nothing else that was that way. I mean, Midnight Marauders, you know, again, the, the difference with Midnight Marauders too, is that Midnight Marauders has those, um, the page turners in the middle, you know, the, the um the the woman Spoken talking word. in the middle that's kind of like guiding you through yeah yeah and then um people's instinctive travels in the passive rhythm had that same interlude thing going on too that the guys did but low in theory just kind of flowed and the beautiful thing about it is that when you play it you don't have the 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 instinct to skip a song or to stop it or to do anything to it you just let it go it just it just it just flows so beautifully from one track to another one. Um, and then even like now when I listen to the CD, because when I first got it, I listened to the um, the cassette. And at the end of uh, uh, verses from the abstract, it's like I want to stop and get up and go turn the tape over. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I'm listening to the CD. Let me sit back down and enjoy this. So it's, and it's just going to keep going without me having to touch it. But it's, it's just one of those albums that, you know, we, we call them unskippables. It's, it's an unskippable. Mm-hmm. Like there's no, yeah. no need to skip a track. You know, if anything, you might want to listen to a track over, but it's more so you listen to the whole album and then you start it over again to listen to it again, because you get that same feeling, you know, it's like watching a movie. You start it in the beginning and you watch it through and it goes to the finish and there's no bad parts. There's no, you know, nothing that's, it's, it's pretty flawless to me. I mean, I, I've never had any kind of argument against anything being wrong with that album maybe maybe in the history of hip-hop for me there there might not be with the exception maybe of of big boy and andre 3000 there may not be two people that i enjoy listening to rap together as much as i enjoy listening to tip and fife 
that, that there is such a camaraderie and a, and a flow and a love there between the two of them. And it just, there's, there's a playfulness that when you hear the two of them together comes out and, and there's, there's just something pure about it that I, I can't get over how much I enjoy listening to the two of them rhyme together. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because my feeling when I first heard Outcast, it reminded me of when I first heard Tribe Called Quest because it was something I'd never heard before. It was production and sound and a feeling that I, I, it just reminded me of like, this reminds me when I first heard Tribe. It's like something brand new that's never been done before. That's like just out of a, a, a whole new sound of, of, of music. And so every time they put out an album, it never sounded like the last one. It's like the, when they when they came out with their first album, it blew my mind. And then when AT Aliens came out, it was a whole different sound in the first album. And then when uh, Aquemini came out, it was a, a whole different sound from the first album. It was still them, but it was like, okay, now we're bringing you something new. It's still us and we're still doing our thing, but it's something new. And then um, Stankonia, something new. And then when... And then when uh, uh, Speaker Box came out and they did two separate albums, I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> but it's, it, it was always fresh new something that they were bringing us. So same thing when People's Instinctive Travels came out and then when Low and Theory came out and when Midnight Marauders came out. Now, when I said Midnight Marauders and Low and Theory are neck and neck, they, they still sound like two different albums. So it was still like, mm. it was like, it was like a refreshing thing when, when Midnight Marauders came out. Everybody was so excited because Low and Theory was so dope. Everybody's like, oh my God, we got another one. And it was just as dope as the last one. Then when Beats, Rhymes, and Life came out, I still appreciated it, but a lot of people were like, okay, wait a minute, this sounds different. I'm like, but it's still dope. It's still, and it, and the, the, the low end on that album is more low end than, than low end theory to me. It's just mm. more like, it's more vibrational and it's more, it's louder and it's got more thump in it. Um, and then when, when uh, Love Movement came out, I loved it, but there were so many people who were like, this is whack, this doesn't sound like Tribe, da 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 But I'm like, everybody that's Jacques and Jay Dilla now, I'm like, that's where he started. So it's like, mm -hmm. you're backtracking now, like, oh, well, I still don't like it. I'm like, yeah, but you like JD, so go back and listen to it and think about it from that perspective. Like, that's Jay Dilla touching that album. But yeah, um, definitely gave me the same vibes with them. We want to be mindful of your time, and Monosi, thank you so so much for being with us and, and, and for being willing to, to be with us on, on this episode. We want to close because uh, I, w I want to close with two questions. And, and the, the, the big one is we want to hear what your top 10 hip-hop albums of all time would be. Um, but before we, before we get into that, you mentioned something that you are listening to music in a different way now than you once did. And so I, I, I want to ask, as someone who um, your relationship with music is, is no longer just as someone who loves music and, and loves this art form, um, this is also what you do professionally now. And so has, mm -hmm. has your relationship to music in general changed as it has become vocation? It's become job as much as it has become passion and love and hobby. Yes. Um, it's because, well, when I first started DJing, I didn't want to play anything that was familiar. I, I felt like my job as a DJ, based on the people that influenced me, I felt like my job as a DJ was to introduce people to music that they had never heard or had rarely heard. So like I was more into playing the samples 
or the, the you know the, the the drum breaks or the the B side or the the fourth track on the album or the the you know the other side of the 12 inch or whatever like that was my goal was to was to not play anything that was familiar as i got to be more popular as a dj i started getting gigs where i had to play more familiar music so i had to find that balance where it's like okay play what the people want to hear but also try to educate them and introduce them to something new so for most of the gigs that i do that, ha- that where i have to play familiar music i will sneak in a track or two or if i'm playing a song that has a sample then i'll play the sample first and then play the the um the song that sampled it. Um, I mean, a lot of DJs do that, but I kind of make that, you know, I make it a point to try to educate people and throw songs in there every now and then. Um, And then if it's something new that I'm, you know, I try to get into the songs as much as I can. If it's something that's newer, like I don't play too much mainstream stuff on the radio, but I'm saying like something that's new and unfamiliar to me. um, I try to get into it somehow, whether I got to, you know, read about the artist or read about how the song was made or something so I can get a connection to it, especially if it's not something that hits me right away. If it's something that I'm not feeling, I'm not going to play it. But if it's something that I'm feeling, but I need to feel it more and need to really get into it, then I'll, I'll dig and I'll, you know, find out more about how the song was created so I can, you know, get that identity with it. But for the most part, um, when I listen to music now, it kind of has to hit me. So like if I'm digging and I see something that stands out, then I'll take it home and I'll listen to it and I'll listen for that one track that stands out to me. Not necessarily the most popular track on the album or what people are expecting me to play, but it's whatever jumps out to me and whatever hits me here or whatever I kind of identify with as far as like how the song was put together or who played the drums on it or who played the bass on it or whatever. That's another thing I do when I look for records. I look for who the musicians are who the producer was or, you know, and I kind of streamline that in with, with what I already have. So, um, but it's definitely changed because, you know, before I didn't care what people wanted to hear. I just wanted to play what I wanted to hear, but then I kind of had to meet them halfway with what's familiar and then what works for me. And, you know, between playing the sample or the drum break or playing like the not so familiar song by the artist, but sometimes that works because, and most of the time it works because people aren't used to hearing that fourth track on the album they're used to hearing the two hit singles so when i play the fourth track on the album they're like oh nobody plays that i'm like that's why i did it because i wanted to bring you to that place where you feel good and you're not you know just feeling the same way you feel every time you hear the other song um it, it seems it seems like a merely encyclopedic knowledge of uh, of hip-hop and so we we, we want to know from you your your opinion, the 10 best hip hop albums of all time. Okay. This is hard. Um, Cause I don't think I can narrow it down to 10. Um, I tell Rob, and this is in no particular order. I, I, yeah, I, no, no order. Just, yeah. just, just the 10 that you'd include. Just so you know, this is the nature of the podcast. Like I, I told Rob when, cause we each made a top 50 to like figure out where we're going to go. Like our first set of 50 to make a top 100. And when I was done with that, I said, Rob, I didn't even have fun doing this. Like I, I left out because I made a list of 50, but I left out 50. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't fun, you know? So whatever pain you're going through trying to get down to 10, we feel you. Okay. So, I mean, I'm just going to go with the ones that I enjoy the most, not necessarily um, what some other people would consider top 10 because like, for example, Illmatic is one of the best albums ever made. 
but I've listened to it so much. It's like painful at this point. I mean, but it's not taking anything away from it. It's just my personal experience. So I'll throw Illmatic out there. Um, Stunts, Blunts, and Hip Hop by Diamond D. Um, because that album is so well put together between the samples, between the track listing, between, you know, the, the order of everything. It's just, I just, I love that record. And I think it's overlooked. And I think that it should be in everybody's top 10. That's just my opinion. Um, it Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back by Public Enemy. Um, for various different reasons from, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of sample usage, clever ways of using samples and, you know, good sounding ways of using samples. So that's another one of my favorites based on that. Um, Straight Outta Compton, because it influenced so many other albums because of the way it was put together and because of the messages and because of the rhymes and the production and everything. Um, and it's a classic. Of course, um, Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers. Um, and I'm not saying that because I helped promote the album. I'm saying that because it's a great album. Um, that's another album that is a blueprint of, of a certain style of production. I mean, you know, you never heard eight people in a group on, on one album or in, you know, compiled in the songs before. Um, and, you know, it's all the artists that came from there, Ghostface, uh, Raekwon, Old Dirty Bastard, Inspector Deck, everybody had their own individual success as well as their success as a group. So that is kind of higher up on the list. But again, I can't give it a number because I'll drive myself crazy with that. <laughs> um, Three Feet High and Rising by De La Soul. Um, again, sampling, um, the fact that it sounds like a game show in the beginning and the fact that the way it was put together with all the little skits and the, the, the again, it being a blueprint, one of a kind kind of album. Okay, uh, I'm gonna throw a boomerang on for number seven. Um, my my choice for number seven is "To Whom It May Concern" by Freestyle Fellowship. Wow, are you guys familiar with that album? So Freestyle Fellowship was another one of my introductions to jazz. Um, I mean, basically their album, their first album, "To Whom It May Concern," came out around the same time as Low in Theory, um, a little bit after, I believe. Um, and their the way they flow is like, they're, just, they're like jazz MCs. They're not like jazz MCs. They, they flow like, their, their, their rhymes are like jazz coming out of their mouths. Um, the music that was put together, um, they had a producer named James Sumbi, who's, you know, he's an underground producer. He's had uh, very little commercial success, but he's, just the way he put all those tracks together was just, was just crazy. And it's all jazz samples, all influenced. There's um, a group called the Earthquake Brothers that are a jazz group that played on it. Um, a lot of people in the world don't know about that album, but a lot of people in the world do know about that album. I would put that in my personal top 10. Did you witness um, the Good Life Cafe scene when it was happening? All the, the battles and the cyphers? Yes, I'm, I'm, what's considered, I'm what's considered an original Good Lifer from that, from that era. Um, I started going there in 91. I used to work with somebody that went there and he brought me, he told me about it because I was in the, in the, uh, break room at our job complaining about hip-hop like I wanted to see some local hip-hop and not just east coast artists and not just gangster rap mm -hmm. and he's like oh we have a good life cafe I can take you down there um, his name is Jay Smooth and he took me down there and I got to see everything and like I think maybe the third or fourth week I was there I met Freestyle Fellowship and they gave me the record and said you know here here's our record take it home and let me know what you think of it and it blew my mind that was like this is crazy like I'd never you know and back then it was a it was you know I, I figured my I figured myself as a big hip-hop fan but I'd never heard anything like that 
And but I mean, mm. it was still early in the game. I mean, it was only like maybe like what? Uh, let's see, eighty four, eighty five is when hip hop really started getting popular. So like you know, six years after hip hop started, but back then that blew me away. Like I'd never heard anything like that, and to this day, I can't even say that I've heard something like that. Yeah, because mm. that that album they had an, they had an album after that called Inner City Griots which was more, it wasn't as jazzy. It was more on the hip hop side of things, but it's still just as dope. Um, but that album was just like, for it to be independently released and independently put together, it's it's amazing. So somebody that's listening to this yeah, and for, would go back for, and find that and appreciate it. For people who, who do not know, I mean, we just kind of jumped right into it, but could you kind of explain the scene that was happening at the Good Life Cafe? Like what that was and what was happening there and, and how they kind of, came out of that yeah so it was um the good life cafe was a health food cafe that was just in the corner of a strip mall and there was a kid that was into hip-hop his name is arcane blaze and his mom b hall knew the people that had the 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 good life thing the the good life cafe so um he told her about his idea so she approached them and they um opened the shop up to them on thursdays so it was every thursday from eight to ten it was like three dollars to get in and there was a little stage in the corner and a bunch of chairs and people just came in and sat down and they had a list that you signed up on. You signed up on a list to get your turn to go up and rap. And so um, Cut Chemist used to play the beats. Cut Chemist and DJ Wolf used to play the beats for the rappers to rap to. And people would just get up there and rap. And some people would just get up there freestyle and some people would have a song to perform. And it was, every, I mean, it was all kind of people from, you know, all kind of, different, you know, white black asian um jewish christian muslim like girls boys like everybody any everybody and anybody kids adults like you know they would come in there and just you know do whatever they wanted to do um there was a lot of people that um that made waves there was like uh, volume 10 there was pigeon john there was um there was two groups called rebels of rhythm and unity committee and they came together and formed jurassic five and, you know, they, they, of course, Jurassic Five became successful. So Freestyle Fellowship were considered like the fathers of the good life. Like they were like the OGs, like the, they were like the best MCs there. So it's like whenever they came to Freestyle or whatever, it was like a big deal. Like, oh, Freestyle Fellowship's coming tonight. Oh, it's going to be a big deal. But everybody was, um, you know, looking up to them and wanted to be, you know, not not necessarily down with them. I mean, they were down with them as friends, but everybody wanted to get to the level where Freestyle Fellowship was as as MCs and um, as artists. I'm sorry that we went on this tangent, but you just kind of like dropped that you were part of a very historic moment yeah. of hip hop. So I had to let you go no. on for like ten minutes or so about it. We we could have spent the no, hour. No, okay. no, for the record, there's a documentary out now on Netflix called This Is the Life. And it tells the whole story. Mm-hmm. I'm in it, and all the people that I mentioned are in it. And it's all, it's streaming on Netflix now. So if you want to watch that, it tells the whole story from beginning to end, uh, or just tells the different facets of you know the good life and how how it started. You know, a lot of what I told you is in the documentary as well. So it's definitely worth watching. And that's from Ava DuVernay, the Selma director. Yeah. And she third- was the MC at the Good Life. She was an MC. At, she was an MC at the Good Life too. She was in a group called Figures of Speech. And there's footage of her rapping in the documentary as well. All right. So we need to make sure. Yeah, I've, known listeners... Ava, I've known her since 1991. Oh, wow. Low in theory. Okay, good. That's a great segue. <laughs> <laughs> so we can bring it back yeah. to what we're doing here. So I think we have you at eight now. Mm-hmm. 
And would you include low in theory as, as one of your 10? Well, yes, but I mean, I feel like it's a given because we've talked about it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you'll let me do two more instead of one. Okay. More. Um, well, let's see two more. Cause I have a, I had some notes. Um, now I have to figure out cause I have six here and I got to figure out which two. To talk oh, about. we're, we're um, not going to, we're not going to make you choose. This <laughs> is not a Sophie's choice situation. You go ahead and give us all six. Okay. Okay. Um, well, of course I have to say midnight marauders cause I've been talking about it the whole time I was talking about low end theory. Um, Midnight Marauders is just, you know, again, it's, it's, it's tribe at their best again. It's, 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 it's just amazing. I'm going to say Death Certificate by Ice Cube. The next one I'm going to say is um, X-Clan to the East Blackwards. Um, because it was, at the time, it was very educational. What the Album by Redman. Because um, it, to me, is hilarious first of all because red man is crazy um but that's another one of those albums that's one of a kind i'm also going to say cypress hills album the first album self-titled um again i keep you know reiterating the fact that samples mean a lot to me because of the cleverness of how they're put together and you know combined with break beats and you know and consistent rhymes and uh i just consider that album to be very well put together well, at, at the very least, our listeners are going to have some homework to do now. That, that is a hip-hop <laughs> education all on one list. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Mona Lisa, we can't thank you enough. Thanks for spending an hour with us and uh, nerding out together about the hip-hop music we love. And we want to encourage our, our listeners, um, especially you want to look for this Netflix documentary, This Is The Life. Uh, and, and this mm-hmm. is really kind of a history of Good Life Cafe. And it's going to take you through a history that, that Mona Lisa is a part of. And, and of course, we want to encourage our mm-hmm. listeners, how can they follow you? There are some social media handles you want to give out? Um, I am on Instagram, Twitter, and Twitch as Mona Lisa 7872 So you can follow me on those. Um, I have my dub lab show. If you go to dublab lab.com and go to the DJ page, you'll see my DJ page. It's under Mona Lisa and, um, it might be under Mona Lisa Murray, but it's definitely under Mona Lisa. And, uh, my show is, um, posted there. Um, all the archives of all my shows are there. So you can see, um, the artists that I played in the particular shows. Um, I'll give a description of what's in the show for the most part. And um, the show is live streaming every, well, not live, but it streams every third Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. And if you missed the show, the archive is usually up a couple of days later. So you can always listen to the, to the shows when they're on the site. Um, I'm also part of uh, Umoja Hi-Fi, which is a uh, sound system crew in Los Angeles. Um, there's about eight of us. There's about six of us that are active in L.A. Um, our uh, Instagram page is Umoja Hi-Fi. That's U-M-O-J-A Hi-Fi. And um, we have different events that we do around the city. And they have a nice up uh, radio uh, reggae show that they do every Sunday from 3 to 5. And hopefully I'll be doing a set on there soon. So uh, It has been such a treat for us to have, have, have you on. And uh, we're going to be reaching out to you in the coming days as you have given Micaiah and I both uh, some, some homework. And we want to let you know our thoughts as we take the deep deep dive with you into some great hip hop that we were not fully aware of coming into this conversation.
Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Wow. Well, again, we want to thank Mona Lisa Murray, DJ Mona Lisa, for being with us. And you just heard from her all the ways you can you can follow her and uh, and and stay in touch with what she's doing. Uh, we also want to encourage you to go check out this Netflix documentary. This is the life history of Good Life Cafe. If you want to know about underground hip hop in the early to mid nineties coming out of Southern California. This is the place to begin. This is the place to start. And so we want to encourage you to check this out. And that's a great place to, to see some interviews with Mona Lisa as well as she was one of the original, uh, one of the original good lifers there at good life cafe. But Bakaya, give me your thoughts on our conversation with Mona Lisa and your thoughts about the low end theory after that conversation. Yeah, I mean, she definitely just reaffirmed, you know, everything I thought about the album, but the so much of the great stuff of the conversation uh, wasn't about the low-end theory, but really just enjoying her list of some of the quintessential hip-hop albums. Because uh, there were some that, as our listeners know, weren't on my list and weren't uh, on certainly would never probably never make it to like the Rolling Stone 500 list, the 2020 update even. Uh, so there, there are some on there that I'm going to have to now go back and listen to. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited to, to get the chance to hear what, you know, maybe some lesser known, some, you know, gems of hip hop that uh, I've been sleeping on for however long I've been alive. Absolutely. Well, listener, Makai and I both agree low in theory is a great album. It is among the greatest albums. Micaiah, is this an album worthy of inclusion among our first 25 for season one of the podcast? No question. I mean, also, I this is, um, this may seem kind of crazy to some people, but I mean, this, this might be, other than Blood on the Tracks, just because I love it so much, uh, the most flawless album that we've talked about. Cause even when we talked about revolver, you know, it's just like, I can deal without yellow submarine. You know, I can, and personally I can deal without Taxman. I have my theories. They are on record, you know, but I don't want to take anything away from this album. You know, the, this, this is the, the most perfectly constructed version of this album. I don't want to swap takes. I don't want to swap outtakes with things that made on the album. This might be the most, you know, um, flawless, like, LP that we've covered so far. With Wildflowers, I was like, yeah, you know, Honeybee, I don't dig so much. But there's no, there's really nothing even on the low-end theory where I'm like, eh, I can really deal without that. You know, it's just like, I love this whole piece in, in its entirety. I don't other than mm-hmm. that, maybe Mothership Connection, but I mean, that's seven. I mean, this is almost double the, the tracks. Yeah. We, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really is. It's an impressive feat that there is not a single weak spot on this album. And so, listener, if you have loved Low in Theory for a long time, or at least you've been familiar with it for a long time, we want to hear from you. 
Um, but for the listener who has never heard low in theory before, here's what we want you to do. We want you to go and start whatever streaming service you use, or if you want to go and buy the album, start the first songs, get to the end of excursions, get to the end of the opening track of this album, and then send us a message at instant on Instagram at you forgot one on Twitter at you forgot one pod or reach out to us on our website, youforgotone.com, and we want to know one song in what you think of Low Wind Theory. Because however you feel one song in, you're just going to feel that even more as this album goes on. So thanks for being with us today. Again, thank you so much to DJ Mona Lisa from Los Angeles for being with us. Be sure to join us next week when we have with us the producer of The Strokes is This It and Broom on Fire, Gordon Raphael. Back in the days on the boulevard, I landed. We used to kick routines and the presence was fitting. It was I, the abstract. And me, the five-footer. I kicks the mad style, so step off the Frankfurter. Yo, Fife, you remember that routine that we used to make spiffy like Mr. Clean? Um, um, a tidbit, um, a smidgen. I don't get the message, so you got to <laughs> okay. run the pigeon. You're on point, Fife. All the time, Tip. You're on point, Fife. All the time, Tip. You're on point, Fife. All the time, Tip. So then grab the microphone and let your words rip. Now here's a funky introduction of how nice I am. Tell your mother, tell your father, send a telegram. I'm like an energizer, cause you see I last long. My crew is never ever whack because we stand strong. Now if you say my style is whack, that's where you're dead wrong. I slay that body and El Segundo, then push it along. You be a fool to reply the fight is not the man. Cause you know and I know that you know who I am. A special shout out piece goes out to all my pals, you see. And a middle finger goes for all you punk MCs. Cause I love it when you whack MCs despise me. They get vexed, I will next, gonna contest me. I'm just a flat MC who's five for three and very brave. On top remaining, no home training, cause I misbehave. I come correct and full effect of all my holes in check. And before I get the butt, the gym must be a wreck. You see, my aura's positive, I don't promote no junk. See, I'm far from a bully and I ain't a punk. Extremity of rhythm, yeah, that's what you heard. So just clean out your ears.